Everyone, this is Bina 007 and Vassals of Kingsgraves, Agatha Christie reread episode 34. And today we have a mini pod for you for the book The Moving Finger, published in July 1943. This is the third Miss Marple history. It's worth saying for our American listeners that this is a novel that does differ significantly between the US and UK editions. The US edition is much shorter and particularly takes a lot of material out of the start of the book, apparently. I suspect that maybe the reason this is a mini-pod is that myself and Pat read the British edition, which has not been abridged, and therefore maybe takes longer to wind up to the plot, which we both liked. I think it was more the stuff around it that we found tiresome. The title of the novel is also rather mysterious and epic, but really the way to think of this book is as Mrs. as Agatha Christie's poison pen letter novel. The book takes its name from Quatrain 51 of Edward Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which weirdly I think I actually read as a teenager. The moving finger writes, and having writ moves on, not all thy piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. So basically, this speaks of the pitiless, merciless nature of poison pen letters, letters sent to people anonymously that might be accusing them of something they've done or haven't done, that are gossipy and nasty and malicious. And I think part of what makes poison pen letters horrible is the idea that someone you know has written them. And that's why the setting of this novel in a village makes the actions therein even more sinister and nasty. So before, as always, we get into a spoiler-free discussion of the main characters, of whether the novel holds up to modern readers, of the adaptations, we will first have a look at the historic context in which this novel was written and published. And as I said before, it was very different in the US and UK. It actually came out in the US in July 42 and did not come out in the UK until June 43. For historic context in the book, there isn't much at all. Um, There is a quote when someone is describing the schoolmistress where they say, the schoolmistress here is is a most unpleasant young woman. Quite red, I'm afraid. She lowered her voice over the word red, which may be Agatha Christie's view on communism or her parodying small town village folks' views of communism. But actually, the war doesn't appear much. People have read into the protagonist, who is a pilot suffering from an injury, that maybe he's a World War II pilot, and adaptations have lent into this. But really, this is the period when the books really aren't referring to the war, because the publishers thought that didn't make them sell. So really, the books at this point are escapism. Still, between the prior novel and this, what has happened in the world in which the British reader is going to receive this novel? Well, in February 1943, the Battle of Stalingrad ended with the Russians victorious. Uh, Mohandas Gandhi, under arrest by the forces of the British Raj in Pune as a member of the Quit India movement, keeps a hunger strike to protest his imprisonment. Meanwhile, in Berlin, in his Sportpalast speech, 
German propaganda minister Josef Goebbels declares a, quote, total war against the Allies, tacitly admitting that Nazi Germany faces serious dangers. So really, you see the tide of war turning with the Russians successfully defending themselves at the epic Battle of Stalingrad. The Nazis execute the members of the White Rose German resistance movement, many of them young students. And the American movie studio executives agree to allow the Office of War Information to censor movies. In March of 1943, exiled French aviator Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's self-illustrated children's novella The Little Prince is published in New York, which is a, a charming book. In the history of computing hardware, British prototype Mark I Colossus Computer is constructed. It's the world's first totally electronic programmable computing device to assist in crypto analysts of German signals at Bletchley Park. 173 people are killed in a crush while trying to enter an air raid shelter at Bethnal Green, London. Very sad. And even more tragic, the Nazi German forces liquidate the Jews at the Krakow ghetto in occupied Poland. And in maybe one of the most controversial events that took place in World War II, we have the Katyn massacre. The entire population of Katyn, Belarus, is burnt alive by German occupation forces, something that will be contested by Germany and Russia for many years to come. And the drugs Vicodin and Lortab are first produced in Germany, apparently. On to April 43, Albert Hoffman self-administers the psychedelic drug LSD for the very first time. And we have the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising beginning. In May 1943, the German Africa Corps and Italian troops in North Africa surrender to Allied forces. So another big Allied achievement along with the Battle of Stalingrad. And, as significant, Admiral Karl Dönitz orders most of the U-boats to withdraw from the Atlantic Sea because actually the U-boat warfare is no longer successful given convoy operations. The Dam Buster Raid, officially Operation Chastise, takes place. Bouncing bombs to breach the dam in the Royal Valley, very famous and known to British listeners of this podcast. And the Warsaw Guest Ghetto Uprising ends. 13,000 have been killed, 13,000 Jews, that is, and almost all the remaining 50,000 residents will be deported to the Majdanek and Treblinka extermination camps. And ominously, Josef Mengele begins his position as a medical officer in the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. This is also the month when Norman Rockwell's famous illustration of Rosie the Riveter first appears on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. June 1943, the actor Leslie Howard, known to many of you from Gone with the Wind, dies on BOAC Flight 777. It's a passenger flight shot down by German Junkers um, on its, in the Bay of Biscay. Very sad. The French Committee of National Liberation is formed. General de Gaulle and Henri Giraud are co-presidents. And closer to home in the US, the Detroit race riot of 1943 kills 34 people, wounds more more than 100, and damages and destroys property worth millions. The last train load of Jewish prisoners is moved from Beltzek, extermination camp in occupied Poland, to Sobibor, where they will be gassed tragically, murderously. For the, re- for the remainder of the year, the Nazis will try to obliterate evidence of the site. So as the tide of war turns, the Germans are now trying to cover up their murderous footsteps. And we get to the month of publication, July 1943. Nazi Germany commences Operation Citadel. It will eventually lead to the Battle of Kursks, the largest tank battle in history. The Allied invasion of Sicily begins. Rome is bombed by the Allies for the first time in the war. And Operation Gomorrah begins, which is the British and Canadians bombing Hamburg by night, Americans bombing Hamburg by day, a huge firebombing campaign 
highly controversial to this day. So those are the events of the war, the circumstances into which this book dropped and into which readers will have been primed, I think, for a young hero who is an an officer who is an aircraft pilot who is injured. So let's get into the setting and the characters and the motivation of the book. Spoiler free, as always. So Jerry Burton is the lead character. He is the narrator. Um, He is an aircraft pilot who's injured his leg and is told by his doctor to go and recuperate in the country where nothing ever happens. (laughs) And so he takes a house with his sister, Joanna, and she is really one of Agatha's bright young things. We haven't really seen them for a few decades, but she's very pretty, very fashionable. Quote for Joanna is very pretty and very gay, and she likes dancing and cocktails and love affairs and rushing about in high powered cars. So brother and sister rent a house from Miss Emily Parton, a very prim elderly lady who's fallen on hard times. And I think this is also Agatha Christie telling us something about what the Depression and war has done to ordinary people's finances. And she moves in with one of her former housekeepers. I tend to think, although we don't see poor Miss Emily Barton's mother, that she sounds a bit like Simeon Lee in Hercule Poirot's Christmas. This is the quotation. You didn't know the family at all? No, quite so, yes, through house agents. But my dears, you ought to have known the family. When I first came here, the old mother was still alive. An incredible person, quite incredible. A monster, if you know what I mean. Positively a monster. The old-fashioned Victorian monster devouring her young. Yes, that's what it amounted to. She was monumental, you know. Must have weighed 17 stone, and all the five daughters revolved round her. The girls, that's how she always spoke of them. The girls. And the eldest was well over 60 then. Those stupid girls, she used to call them sometimes. Slaves, that's all they were. Fetching and carrying and agreeing with her. Also very Mrs. Boynton, I think. There is something, isn't there, to Agatha Christie's fat phobia and some of these monstrous, controlling parents. The cast of the novel is absolutely enormous and some of the adaptations slim it down. But really, it's the entire village because all of them are receiving these poison pen letters. Um, There is Florence Elford, the Barton's family former maid, who invites Emily Barton to live with her. There's Partridge, the maid at Little Furs who agrees to stay on with the Burtons, with a U. There's Beatrice Baker, the maid at Little Furs, Mrs. Baker, her mother, Jerry, the young man that she's seeing. There's a whole host of uh, police inspectors, Inspector Graves from the yard and Superintendent Nash, who's the, the county detective. There's Mr. Richard Symington, the solicitor in Nimstock, second husband to Mona, father of two young sons and stepfather of Megan Hunter. There's his wife, Mrs. Mona Symington, There is Mrs. Mona Symington, his wife. Perhaps most interestingly, there is Miss Megan Hunter, the stepdaughter, who's actually a woman of 20 and has been back home from school for a year or so. And she acts almost like a a sort of verging on pubescent child. But really, she is a grown up. And it's Jerry and Joanna Burton who sort of take her in and under whom she blossoms and is first treated as an adult. But it's a very fascinating portrait. And I think in this period, when we think of a number of books that Agatha's writing in this time, most notably Evil Under the Sun, she has some of these these girls who are neither here nor there, who are rather overlooked by their families, and who are therefore in a state of kind of arrested development. And completing the Symington household, we have Elsie Holland, who's a very beautiful nanny of the two young sons. And Jerry Burton is initially rather attracted to her, but is weirdly turned off by the quality of her voice. 
There's a local doctor, Dr. Owen Griffith, who is going to find himself attracted to Joanna Burton. He has a rather stern sister called Amy, um, who acts as his pharmacist and has been in town for years. And of course, we have Miss Jane Marple, who isn't a resident of Limstock, but is a friend of Mrs. Dane Calthrop, who asks her to help in the investigation of what's going on with these poison pen letters. There are so many other people. There's Agnes Woodell, the house parlour maid at the Symington home, Rose, the Symington's cook. We have Miss Ginch, the Symington's clerk. We have Reverend Caleb Dane Calthrop, the local vicar, who is given to Latin quotes and no one understands him. We have his wife who tries to keep an eye on people, probably rather underestimated. And I think a lot of people, you know, really take her to be a silly vicar's wife, but she's very, very astute. This is what Miss Marple says of her friend. Mrs. Dane Calthrop is is a very remarkable woman. You know, she's nearly always right. It makes her rather alarming, I said. Sincerity has that effect, said Miss Marple. Mrs. Dane Calthrop shot out of the fish shop again and rejoined us. She was holding a very large red lobster. Have you ever seen anything so unlike Mr. Pye, she said. Very virile and handsome, isn't it? And that, of course, takes us to Mr. Pye, who's the resident of Limstop, who enjoys the scandal of the poison pen letters. He is an antique collector and is described by his neighbours as effeminate. And we can get into this in the whether the novel holds up for model reader, modern readers and whether this portrait of Mr. Pye is amusing and wry or whether it's actually homophobic. Finally, yes, finally, breathe a sigh of relief. We have Colonel Appleton, resident of Coomaker, a village about seven miles away, and Mrs. Cleet, who is a woman who lives in Limstock and is described as the local witch. And as always with these women, these witchy women, she's assumed to be the person writing the letters. So the plot of the novel is that everyone receives these poison pen letters. We then get the apparent suicide of Mrs. Symington, who has received a letter and is apparently so disturbed by its contents that she takes her own life. Mrs. Jane Marple comes to investigate. There is another murder of a young maid and events escalate. How was the novel received at the time? Well, in general, people have liked the plotting. That is very much the case in the original TLS review in June 43. And I think that Pat and I both agree that this is an incredibly well-plotted book. And Agatha Christie herself said it was one of her favourites, stating, quote, I find that another book I'm really pleased with is The Moving Finger. It is a great test to reread what one has written some 17 or 18 years before. One's view changes. Some do not stand the test of time. Others do, end quote. So she herself rather liked it. Does it stand up to modern readers? Well, let's get into the character of Mr. Pye. This is the description in the novel. Mr. Pye was an extremely ladylike, plump little man, devoted to his petit point chairs, his Dresden shepherdesses and his collection of bric-a-brac. He lived at Pryor's Lodge in the grounds of which were the ruins of the old priory. Pryor's Lodge was certainly a very exquisite house, and under Mr. Pye's loving care, it showed to its best advantage. Every piece of furniture was polished and set in the exact place most suited to it. The curtains and cushions were of exquisite tone and colour, and the most expensive silks. It was hardly a man's house, and it did strike me that to live there would be rather like taking up one's abode in a period room at a museum. Mr. Pye's principal enjoyment in life was taking people around his house. And when it comes to the plot of The Moving Finger and the presumption that poison pen letters are typically written by women, you don't think it's a man, I exclaimed incredulously. Not not an ordinary man, but a certain kind of man. I'm thinking really of Mr. Pye. That's Joanna. 
Don't you feel that he's a possibility? He's the sort of person who might be lonely and unhappy and spiteful. Everyone you see rather laughs at him. Can't you see him secretly hating all the normal, happy people and taking a queer, perverse, artistic pleasure in what he was doing? So obviously I find this all very problematic, the idea that a gay man would be necessarily effeminate and an effeminate man necessarily gay, and that a gay man would of course be spiteful and unhappy because he cannot live a normal, fulfilled family life. I don't think this is the sort of thing one can read today without finding it incredibly awkward. And then of course there's something of the self-hating misogyny that we get in all the Miss Marple novels where Miss Marple is underestimated by those around her, and she herself sometimes just describes herself as dotty and flappy and just a little woman. Miss Marple said, there must be something, but I'm so old and so ignorant, and I'm afraid so foolish. And sometimes you think she's taking the person sort of self-mocking because she's not foolish at all. And sometimes you're, you're thinking, why is she playing into this? Um, that also makes me rather uncomfortable, I should say. And then the final problem in this book, um, which some find more problematic than others, and I think Pat found it really problematic, is the makeover plot. The idea that in the end, um, Jerry Burton is going to fall for the ungainly, not quite a woman, awkward Megan Hunter. And he whisks her off to London and gives her a complete makeover in the hands of Joanna Burton's fashionable um, hairdresser and clothes salesman and she comes out looking absolutely gorgeous and then he declares his love for her um this is like something out of George Bernard Shaw I actually rather like this plot I think it's so sweet when someone finally takes notice of this poor unloved child but it is rather uncomfortable and what I find uncomfortable is not the makeover plot which I think is rather sweet but and maybe that's because as a girl I've been conditioned on these makeover plots for my entire life but the way in which Jerry forces himself on her listen to this I'm in love with you. Her eyes were steady and grave. She said, I think you're the nicest person in the world, but I'm not in love with you. I'll make you love me. That wouldn't do. I don't want to be made. So that is awkward to a modern reader, but I guess good on Agatha Christie and good on Megan for not falling for that kind of male insistence that he's going to have his way. Okay, now into the adaptations. And there are two of this that go along with the two iterations of British television adaptation. The first version is part of the Joan Hickson series made by the BBC Miss Marples, um, which originally aired in 1985. It's incredibly faithful to the novel, apart from bringing together some of the characters. Miss Marple's in the story far sooner than she appears in the novel, because actually Miss Marple shows up pretty late in the novel, which is also a criticism that some make. But unfortunately, this version is very dry and weirdly 1980s in people's haircuts. And Megan, I feel, is horribly miscast. She doesn't pull off that sort of half-child, half-woman air. So actually, I wouldn't recommend that version at all, even though I generally do like Joan Hickson. The second television adaptation is the one starring Geraldine McEwen, and it's part of the ITV Agatha Christie's Marple, which and was released in 2006. It really changes the personality of Jerry. The novel is set... The story's set later than in the novel, um, and it really is a wartime story, or a post-war story. James Darcy plays Jerry Burton, I think, incredibly well, but the cast in general is insane. It stars Ken Russell, Francis de la Tour, Harry Enfield as Mr. Symington, Amelia Fox as um, Joanna Burton, Tallulah Riley, who went on to marry Elon Musk, as Megan, and Kelly Brook. So it's got a fantastic cast. It is a little bit more fun. 
I think it does the makeover very, very well. It definitely leans into the campness of the book, including with the character of Mr. Pie. And I actually think this is a pretty delightful adaptation. So I would highly recommend it. In fact, in a rare case, I think this is probably a better adaptation than the original book. Okay, folks, so as you can tell, we've made this a mini pod. We don't think this is top tier Agatha Christie. I would argue it's second tier. I think for Pat, this is third tier. I mean, he would argue this is down there with N or M as something where the plots may be okay, but really everything surrounding it is rather horrible. Um, If you do give it a go, maybe try the 2006 Marple and see if you like that before plunging into the book. We will be back with another mini pod in the next episode covering Toward Zero. And the next full pod will be Sparkling Cyanide. We'll give a spoiler-filled explanation of what happens in this book after the end credits music. If you want to get involved in the discussion, look for the Vassals of Kingsgrave Discord link, which you'll find on our YouTube channel and on our Twitter feed. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Okay, folks, let's get into the spoiler-filled solution. The first major clue is that the letters are not really about actual scandal. They don't actually tell people about something that's really going on. They're just made up. And so you realise when they, that they have no venom. They're just cover. They're just throwing sand in the eye of anyone who wants to know what's really going on in the village. When you realise that, you realise that the apparent suicide of Mrs. Symington is just a domestic murder. It's just a well-motivated, deliberate murder. And the plotting and the clues, the who benefits, the qui bono, all lies in that particular household. That all of these other characters in the village are just a distraction. Another clue is that the police will suspect a woman, which is a misdirect and that it's actually a man. Another clue is that the suicide note is on a scrap of paper, which one wouldn't do with a suicide note. It's actually an opportunistic Note that someone has taken and kept for another purpose. And also, the final clue is that Elsie Holland does not get a letter, which all of which tells you that it's actually Mr. Symington who has killed his wife because he wants to marry the young, hot nanny. It's nothing more complicated than that. And actually, one of the big, criti- and actually one of the big criticisms of this novel is, again, that it's just a domestic murder, and it's basically the murder is easy plot. Um, so Agatha Christie's basically, it's a good plot, but she's recycling one. A question I would pose to you if you have read it is, did any of you pick up on Amy being in love with Symington? Because I certainly didn't. And what happened to the orphaned boys? So, you know, Mrs. Symington is dead. Mr. Symington's presumably been arrested and tried for her murder. Jerry goes off happily, so does Joanna. But what happens to the poor kids? So there you go. That's the spoiler-filled solution of this novel. Not one of the greatest in our opinion. Probably seen as better by most of the Agatha Christie reading public. If you have an opinion that's different from ours, please, please do get in touch with us on the Agatha Christie Discord. And uh, we'd love to discuss it with you. Thanks for listening. Thank you.